Okay, we are this morning concluding our study through the second book of Kings. And it's been quite an incredible journey. We've seen and learnt hopefully much. Certainly personally I've uh, been very blessed by going through both first and second Kings. We'll kind of summarise and uh, have a quick look back as we get to the end of the, the study. But let's just bow our hearts and just commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you again, Lord, that it is living and powerful. And that your word changes us. Lord, your word says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That, Lord, we need to be thinking differently. And, Lord, we thank you that it's your word that teaches us how we should think. It will teach us how we should be. And so, Father, this morning as we continue and conclude this study, Father, we just pray your blessing upon this time. Lord, help us to hear your voice. We ask that your Holy Spirit teach us this morning, each of us. And Lord, may my words be led and directed of you, that we will be edified together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember, last week we saw Josiah, this good king who brought incredible sweeping reforms of the nation, uh, go out to this strange battle that he chooses to fight against somebody that's almost an ally, uh, Necho, but we said seemingly to do with the fact that Necho had or would seem to have had the Ark of the Covenant and uh, Josiah wanted it back uh, to put it in the temple. Seems to be Josiah's reason for doing that. But he dies in the battle and then his son Jehoaz becomes uh, the next king but only for three months because Pharaoh Necho on his way back from the battle with the Assyrians that he was going to fight stops off again in Jerusalem and he decides he's going to take Jehoaz back down to Egypt as a prisoner. Um, so then another son of Josiah, Jehoiakim, then reigns for 11 years. Okay, and we're going to look at a lot of details surrounding this in a while. And it's in the third year of his reign that Nebuchadnezzar will first come upon Jerusalem. Now, after he has his time, after his 11 years of reigning, um, his son Jehoiachin, or also known as Jeconiah, becomes the next king. But only just for three months, because Nebuchadnezzar comes and uh, deports him, takes him away to Babylon. Now, this king, Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, is quite an interesting character because we find in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 20, verse 22, verse 30, that a blood curse is placed upon him, that none of his descendants would ever sit and rule and reign on the throne of Israel. Now, that presents a problem because this is the Davidic family, the family of David. And, of course, you remember that it was promised to David that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne. One of the, the most important chapters in some respects in the Bible is Second Samuel chapter 7. It's where God makes this covenant with David about his future and about his descendants. And that promise of the Messiah to sit on his throne. Now, God placing this blood curse seems to be a real problem. But you'll find, if you notice in the book of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, we have a different genealogy that bypasses Jeconiah completely. It doesn't come down through Solomon. The line comes down through Nathan, the second surviving son of Bathsheba. And that line comes all the way down to Mary. And so, legally, Jesus is of the the line of David down through Solomon and the other kings, and down through Jeconiah. But because there's that curse, that would disqualify Jesus from sitting on the throne. But he is qualified because the line that comes down from Nathan, from David, comes down to Mary. So Jesus qualifies both from a legal perspective uh, and also um, spiritually in that sense as well. So there's no issue. But it's just an interesting thing when you look at this. And you'll find that um, Jeconiah's name is blotted out in Matthew's account. Why? Well, because the Lord speaks of blotting those names out of the book who were uh, unfaithful and dishonouring to him. And just as God had said, so we find in that account. Well, that leads us to the last king, which we'll see this morning as we conclude this study, uh, of Zedekiah. It's not his real name. It's the name that uh, Nebuchadnezzar gives him. Um, and he reigns for 11 years. He rebels against uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And finally, in 587 BC, he's taken away captive. Now, there's three sieges of Jerusalem that occurred during this period of time. The first one is 606 BC. That's when Daniel is deported. Then we have 597. That's when Ezekiel is taken away and others. 
And then finally we get to 587 when Jerusalem itself is destroyed. And there's lots of interesting history around that. And from a prophetic point of view, uh, it's a great place to do some study. Um, And Lord willing, uh, maybe in the new year, we'll get there and we'll look at some of those things in more detail. But let's now jump straight into the chapter. Then we read chapter 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant three years Then he turned and rebelled against him. So notice that after three years of being king, Nebuchadnezzar comes and effectively he has to bring tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. He becomes almost a vassal king at this point. Um, And we're told that he turned and rebelled against him after this period of time. Now, if we look at the details of this, what we find is that Jehoiakim had been appointed by Pharaoh Necho. He reigns for 11 years, and a lot of these references you'll find in Chronicles as well. Nebuchadnezzar then comes and conquers Jerusalem in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. We're told that he serves for seven years and rebels for five. And you can see the chronology of all this all adds up very nicely. Okay, so we have that whole period of time, 11 years in total. And we'll come back and look at the details of that in a while. 606 BC, again being that year that Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem, Daniel and others are taken away, and that's the first year that Jehoiakim is put under um, a tribute or so from uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, just to mention, there's a couple of interesting events that we can find in secular history, but they help us to understand a bit of the background of this. In 612 BC, so just a few years before this, Nineveh, if you remember the, one of the key cities, one of the principal cities of Assyria, that falls to an alliance of Babylon and Media. Okay, so this great Assyrian Empire, we've started to see it coming down, and no doubt in part because 185,000 of their top troops have been destroyed by the Lord. We saw that a few weeks ago. And as a result of this, uh, the Assyrian Empire starts to decline. Well, in, in 612, Nineveh falls. In 609, now that Assyria are really weakened, Pharaoh Necho leads an army up against Assyria. And this is what we saw last week when Josiah goes out, on when Pharaoh is en route. Uh, but Pharaoh is going up to fight against the Assyrians. He wins the victory and so on. And then we get to 606 BC, and there's a very famous... Battle, the Battle of Karshemesh, when Nebuchadnezzar um, goes up against Pharaoh. So there's two struggling powers, in a sense, wanting to take the, the void that's being left by Assyria. You've got Egypt on one hand, and then you've got uh, Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar wins decisively. And then Egypt are effectively put down as a result. And that's, uh, we read a reference to that in Jeremiah 46. Let's carry on then in the text. Verse 2, And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and sent uh, sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servants the prophets. Now, many prophets have prophesied that judgment was coming, and when you look at particularly the minor prophets, that's the last 12 books of the Old Testament, there is so much in here uh, that speaks of these other nations that are... Uh, causing Israel real problems in these final days of the kingdom. So uh, God here just allowing these other nations to bring judgment just as he'd done through Israel's history. If you remember that God had allowed the Midianites to come up on the land in the time of Gideon. And Gideon asked that question, Lord, why are you allowing this? Aren't you the God that led our fathers across the Red Sea? And God answers Gideon effectively. He says, it's because of your sin. It's because the nation has rejected me. And so God typically has allowed other nations to oppress Israel because of their disobedience. And we see the same thing going on. Incidentally, we find here that Edom are missing from that list. Now I just mention that because we find in the book of Obadiah, the whole of the book of Obadiah is really a judgment against Edom because when Israel was starting to be oppressed by these other nations, and particularly by Babylon, we find that Edom in effect puts the boot in They actually treat Israel very, very cruelly. And they start taking some away and killing some. And of course, Edom were family. That's the family of Esau. You've got Esau and Jacob. Jacob obviously goes on. We see the children of Israel. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. But his brother Edom, they should have been supportive, encouraging or helping in some way. But they didn't. Um, They're not in this list of the nations that the Lord did allow to come against them. But of their own volition... Again, in disobedience to God, Edom come up and, and cause all sorts of problems to Israel. And that's what the book of Obadiah is about. So, 
We carry on. Verse 3. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did and also for the innocent blood that he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon. See, even though Manasseh repented at the end of his life, the effects of the things he did still carried on. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So, Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. And the king of Egypt came, and not again any more out of his land. For the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt unto the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. So, as I said a moment ago, Egypt, this other potential rival power, put down by Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon now are rising to power as the, the, the predominant world empire at this point. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months, and his mother's name was Neshuta, the daughter uh, of uh, El Nathan of Jerusalem and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done now this is the one I mentioned the blood curse is placed upon him but there's a very interesting thing that we need to address because if we read in Kings as we've just done we're told that Jeconiah was 18 years old now if we look an equivalent portion in Chronicles Chronicles 2 Chronicles 36 9 we're told Jehoiachin was Eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem and did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. No question that he was an evil king. No question about the length of reign. But there is this issue about how old he was when he became king. Now, of course, critics of the Bible love to jump on this and say, Ah, see, there's an error in the Bible. So again, eight years old is what we're told in uh, 2 Chronicles. And then we find back in Kings that Jehoiachin was 18 years old. So which is true? Well, we could go to some of the Bible commentaries and see what people have said. Kyle and Dillich, who generally speaking are very, very good commentators, um, from a Jewish perspective, they give a lot of insight, but they make this comment. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he ascended the throne. The eight years of the Chronicles are a slip of the pen. Really? In the Bible? Let me ask you, if that's true, how many other things are slips of the pen? What else could you trust? What else might be wrong? What else might you build doctrine or hope on that might not be right? Adam Clark, another commentator who I respect greatly, he says this, Jehoiachin was 18 years old, and this is his comment, he says, he is called Jeconiah in 1 Chronicles 3.16, and Coniah in Jeremiah 22, in 2 Chronicles 36.9, he said to be only 8 years of age, but this must be a mistake. For we find that having reigned only three months, he was carried captive to Babylon. And there he had wives. And it was very improbable that a child between eight and nine years of old could have had wives. And of such a tender age, it can scarcely be said that as a king, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. The place in Chronicles must be corrupted. So Adam Clark, a great commentator, but he says that we have a mistake in the Bible. And that he says that the place in Chronicles must be corrupted. Now, of course, he's not saying that God made a mistake. What he's saying is that as this has been handed down to us, somehow an error has crept in. Now, Jameson, Fawcett and Brown in their commentary, they say, 18 years old when he began to reign. At the age of 8, his father took him into partnership in the government, 2 Chronicles 36.9. So he began to reign alone at 18. So they're offering a solution to the problem. Their resolution is simply a co-regency, that for this period of time they reigned together. Well, that's great, but there's no biblical support for that. In fact, there's very little secular support for that. So it's a very tentative argument. Let me just read this to you from Tozer. He says this, Let a man question the inspiration of the scriptures, and a curious, even monstrous inversion takes place. Thereafter he judges the word, instead of letting the word judge him. He determines what the word should teach, instead of permitting it to determine what he should believe. He edits, amends, strikes out, adds at his pleasure. But always he sits above the word and makes it amenable to him instead of kneeling before God and becoming amenable to the word. You see, we have a real danger if we start saying, well, there's an error in the Bible, or this bit isn't right. Because which bits are right? And who decides? How do we know? What do we know? Well, Jeconiah was 18 years old. Of that I've got no doubt when he became the king of Judah. 
He reigned three months and ten days. We're told that very clearly from the text. Nebuchadnezzar then comes, takes him captive to Babylon. But he was also the first king of Judah to come to the throne as a vassal king. You remember his father served as a king in his own right before Nebuchadnezzar came in his father's third year. But for this king, for Jehoiachin, he comes to the throne under the rule of a foreign power. Now that's a really interesting point. Because let's go back and look at then the first verse we've got in Chronicles. Because what we're accepting is that what we have in Kings is right in terms of he was 18 years old when he began to reign. So let's look at this verse again. Because I believe there are no errors in the Bible. I don't even, I don't even think that God has allowed translational errors to creep in. Look, look at this. Jack and I was eight years old when he began to reign. Okay, the first thing we need to look at is the words. Now, we are reading a translation, but we have, in the days we live, the wonderful invention of computers. And with computers, you don't have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar to go and find out what the words mean. Okay, back in the day, you had to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar, and there are many good ones uh, throughout history that have helped enormously in resolving some of these things. But the word that we've got there, he was eight years old when he began to reign, Literally, the word is ben, or pronounced bane, uh, literally means a son. So that's why people translate, he was eight years a son when he began to reign. Okay, the, one of the explanations is of uh, literal and figurative relationship, including grandson, subject, nation, etc. Now that's very interesting, because just taking this word on its own, we could say Jeconiah uh, was eight years a son. That's a legitimate translation, rather than saying he was eight years old. But another way we could translate that quite legitimately is Jehoiachin was eight years subject. Now that changes things enormously. Because when we come back to the, the details, we look, Jehoiakim, this is his father, Pharaoh again, the third year of his reign, comes and conquers. And from this point, we find that Israel are under the servitude of Babylon. So, by the time Jeconiah comes to the throne, how long have Israel been under the servitude of Nebuchadnezzar? Well, if you're good at maths, we should ask one of the children to do this for us that have got their math certificates this week. You'll find that by the time Jeconiah comes to the throne, he was eight years subject to the king of Babylon. No contradiction. It's quite simple, actually, when you understand it, understanding what that word means. See, the only problem that exists is a problem with our understanding. And whenever you find a problem in Scripture, the problem is not Scripture, it's your understanding. If you dig deep enough, you will find a resolution. It's not a contradiction at all. And there's no need to to correct the text, because God's word has been preserved, as God said. You see, although we have it translated eight years old, when we understand what the word means... There isn't really a problem with it at all. For eight years he'd been subject to the king of Babylon by the time he comes to the throne. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And back in Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 we're told every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words lest he reprove thee. And now we found a liar. We could talk a lot more on that subject, but just let me encourage you. If you find somebody telling you there's an error in the Bible, don't believe it. Go back to the text. Go back to the words. See what the words mean, and I guarantee you, you will find a resolution. Some years ago, um, at a young people's group, this shows you how long it was when I was a young person, uh, we kind of downloaded from the internet loads and loads of apparent contradictions. And over about three or four weeks, uh, as our young people's group met on a Sunday evening, we would get together and we just went through. We didn't find a single one that was a contradiction. Most of them were just people, if they could read, they would be fine. Um, but they just kind of read a small portion and didn't read the context or whatever else. And there were a few, so we had to dig a little bit deeper. But we didn't find a single contradiction that stood up. Everything we found was very easily resolved once we just did a little bit of, of digging and homework. Let's move on with the study. So, verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. 
husband Jehoiachin. The king of Judah went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers, and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. Okay, so now Nebuchadnezzar coming. And that's, by the way, sorry, just to clarify, that king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign, that's the eighth year of the king of Babylon's reign as well, just to clarify that point. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. Have you remembered that these things that are being taken, we're going to see them again when you get to Daniel chapter 5. Because we find Belteshazzar, the few down the line, king of Babylon, will end up going and calling and bringing these vessels and using them at a party that he's having in memory or tribute to his God. And God is very unhappy about that, and that's where we have that writing on the wall and so on. But these are the vessels that are being carried away to Babylon at this point. Verse 14, and he carried away all Jerusalem, and all the princes, and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. So, this is where Ezekiel is taken away, and many others with him. Daniel is already gone at this point, but now Nebuchadnezzar comes, and uh, Ezekiel and many others, the, the best of the land are taken away. 10,000, we're told. And he carried away Jehoiachim to Babylon, and the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land, those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of might, even 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all that were strong and apt for war, even them, the king of Babylon, brought captive to Babylon. So, just totally destroying Israel's capacity to defend themselves or do anything, just taking all the best of the land, the strongest of the land away. The king of Babylon made Mathaniah his father's brother, brother's king, so this is now another son of Josiah, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 20 and 1 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Now I just want to show you again just how precise the chronology is because we're told that Zedekiah reigns 11 years. Now you can read through this text and you can just skip over these numbers if you want to but when you start putting together you'll find that all the different references from numerous portions of scripture all fit together perfectly. You know you look at other ancient uh, writings or civilizations and it's a nightmare if anybody's ever tried to look at the history of the Egyptians and try to figure out even amongst the, the best Egyptologists there's still so much contention about when different pharaohs were ruling which dates and how it works when you come to the Bible and you don't find that you find real precision in these details once again the first siege led by Nebuchadnezzar was in 606. He actually becomes king the following year. Okay, his father dies while he's away uh, fighting the battles in this time. And is actually, uh, this is kind of the, the, uh, the year that he's uh, uh, brought to the throne. But the first year that's counted as his reign as king will be 605 BC. The second siege is in 597 BC. We mentioned this is when Ezekiel was taken. And the final siege down here in 587. Now, We've just looked at this verse. Um, Jehoiakim uh, was 25 years old when he began to reign, reigned 11 years. Okay, so we can look at the time of Jehoiakim down here. So these are the years that he reigns, and that takes us up to this point. And then as you saw, that as he dies and his son comes to the scene, uh, there was just saw Jeconiah, and then the second siege occurs. Now we're also told, this is what we just looked at, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years. So now we follow on the next king because for three months only Jeconiah rules. So then we find our 11 years once again take us down beautifully to this point here. The final siege of Jerusalem. So all these things dovetail together. Now... We're also told in Jeremiah, now in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of the king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, uh, captain of the guard, which served the king of Babylon into Jerusalem and burned the house of the Lord from the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and all the houses of the great men burned he with fire. So this is talking about the final siege. Notice we're told it's in the nineteenth year. So now if we look at Nebuchadnezzar and we look at his reign, we notice all the way down here, we come to the year of the siege in his 19th year. And these are just independent authors. One's written by Jeremiah. We have the accounting kings, which some believe could have been written by Ezra. 
But all of these different accounts all fit together. There's no contention, there's no issue, no difficulty. You can trust the details that we read in the Bible. We read on, verse 19. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to talking to Zedekiah, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah until he had cast them out from his presence. The Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. A foolish mistake to make given the circumstances. And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his host against Jerusalem and pitched against it, and they built forts against it round about. And the city was besieged unto the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gates between the two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now, the Chaldees were against the city round about. And the king went the way toward the plain. So the king, Zedekiah, escapes. He gets out, and he's running away across the plain now, trying to get away from uh, the king of Babylon. And the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king. This is going to be a dramatic scene. This is in the middle of the night. The king's escaping, trying to get away. The Chaldees realize that he's gone. They're chasing after him. And they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. So he hadn't got particularly far, only probably about 10 miles or so. And all his army were, were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. What an incredible situation to find that the last thing this king gets to see is his children being put to death before his eyes. And then they take his eyes out. Not a pleasant situation. This, of course, is a situation of time of war. Interesting, though, we have a a prophecy given to us in Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 12, verse 13. My net also will I spread upon him, speaking of Zedekiah, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans. Yet shall he not see it, though he shall die there. And, you know, this is one of those, if you saw, if you read this prophecy prior to what we've just seen or just heard, you'd be thinking, how can he come to Babylon and not see it, and yet die there? It doesn't make any sense. But of course, you see the clarity of the prophecy when you realize that he was taken to Babylon he did die there but he never got to see it because by the time he arrived his eyes had been taken out incredible incredible detail that God has in his word and particularly in regard to prophetic things and by the way just as another aside all of these prophecies were fulfilled literally you know there are some people that try and tell us that some of the prophecies concerning the end times as we refer to it they're not literal we have to take them allegorically or they're they're figurative they mean something else they never of course tell you really what they mean but that's not the way any prophecy is in scripture every prophecy we have is fulfilled literally the prophecy that Jesus prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem was fulfilled literally and so many other prophecies all these ones we've been looking at they were all fulfilled literally nothing allegorically in the fifth month on the seventh day of the month which is the 19th year, the king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, servant of the king of Babylon to Jerusalem, and this is what we read a moment ago, and he burnt the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem around about. And that's a really important thing just to, to take note of. That yes, Jerusalem falls, but in the process they break down the walls of the city. Okay, this will become quite important when we get to Daniel chapter 9 and we see a prophecy there specifically about these things. Now, the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon, with the remnant of the multitude, did uh, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. So people just to look after the land, stop beginning overrun. We're told the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord, and the bases, and the brazen sea, that's the, the, the laver, that was made out of these mirrors from the, the, the ladies that they'd left Egypt. Oh, sorry, yes, left Egypt. Um, they melted them all down, these, these kind of things were made. The, the original one was, of course, made um, for their wilderness journeys, but when they get to the time of Solomon, Solomon makes a much bigger one, very ornate, um, but still this brazen sea that we use for the priests to wash, all that was taken, 
uh, that was the house of the Lord. The Chaldees did break in pieces, carry the brass of them to Babylon, and the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons and the vessels of brass wherewith the minister, uh, they ministered took they away. Took they away. So. All these little bits, uh, and just reading on, and the fire pans, the bowls, and such things as women of gold, uh, in gold and of silver, and silver the captain of the guard took away. Now it's interesting, if you go to the Temple Institute today in Jerusalem, you will find that they've built or remade many of these things in preparation for the temple that's going to be built. The Jews are absolutely convinced, certainly the Orthodox Jews, that the temple will be rebuilt and it will be rebuilt very soon. And so they've got everything ready. The table of showbread again is ready. They've got a menorah that's built that's ready. All these things that they're talking about here, uh, shovels and the, the pots and the pans and everything, all of those things they've made in preparation to recommence their sacrifices in the temple. We are so close to these things. But at this time, they were carried away to Babylon. I'm told the two pillars, one sea, the bases which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, um, the brass of all the vessels uh, was without weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the uh, capita, the, the bit on the top of it, uh, was brass, and the height of the uh, capita, three cubits, and the reason work and the pomegranates upon the capita round about all of brass and like unto these had the second pillar with wreath and work. So these are just the pillars that Solomon had made. We looked at this way back. Just real detail around the tops of these pillars. Just engravings and so on. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. And out of the city he took an officer that was set over the men of war and five men of them that were in the king's presence, which were found in the city, and the principal scribe of the host, which mustered the people of the land, and three score men of the people of the land that were found in the city. And uh, Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon, to Riblah, and the king of Babylon smote them, and slew them at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of the land. These seemingly were people that were godly people. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want any influence of the God of Israel being carried through into Babylon. Of course, he neglected to think of people like Daniel, which we'll look at. And as for the people that remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, even over them he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, the son of Shephan, ruler. So, not a king but just a man that's now appointed by the king of Babylon to now be kind of governor of the land. And when all the captains of the armies, uh, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah the governor, they came to Gedaliah, to Mizpah, even Ishmael, the son of uh, Nethahiah, and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and Sariah, the son of Tahumeth, the Nethrophite, and Jezaniah, the son of... As I say, you can mispronounce these later by all means. I'm getting all these probably terribly wrong and some, but it can speak Hebrew would uh, probably be very despondent with me. But anyway, um, so all of these individuals. And Gedaliah swore to them and to their men and said unto them, Fear not to be servants of the Chaldees. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. So Gedaliah is giving them some good advice. He's saying, look, in a sense, this is of God. Just serve the king of Babylon. It's going to be well with you. Now, Jeremiah will deal a lot with these things and mentions Gedaliah in detail. But it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah and the son of uh, Elishima, of the seed royal, came and ten men with him and smote Gedaliah that he died. And the Jews and the Chaldees that were with him at Mizpah. And all the people, both small and great for the captains of the armies, arose and came to Egypt for they were afraid of the Chaldees. So they kill this governor of the land and they end up fleeing to Egypt. Now God specifically told them, don't do this. But you're reading Jeremiah. The people rejected Jeremiah's warnings and every other individual, all the other prophets that have warned this, they just put them to one side. They didn't want to hear. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And it came to pass in the 7th or 30th year of the captivity that Jehoiachin King of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the seventh uh, and seventh and twentieth day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, out of prison. 
And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon. So they seem to get on well and he gives him this kind of position of authority, releases him from prison and changed his prison garments. And he eats bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king, a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. So, we conclude, we come to the end. You know, just to, to give you some other just interesting historical uh, points here. We've got this uh, king just mentioned there, Evil Morodak. Uh, doesn't have a particularly long reign. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was Nebuchadnezzar's father. Nebuchadnezzar becomes king. We're very familiar with him, particularly again because of the things we read in the book of Daniel. But after him, we have this Evil Morodak that becomes king. Also this other individual here for a short time reigns. Then another uh, individual, uh, Libashi Mardak. There's lots of secular history and ornaments and pots and uh, things that have been written on, tablets and so on that have been discovered. Um, then we get down here to Nitocris um, and Nabonidus, and then we get finally down to Belshazzar. Okay, and this is the king once again that's reigning, that has that party in Daniel chapter five, and he's finally uh, overthrown by the incoming Persian Empire, which becomes the next big world empire. So we've kind of seen uh, Egypt had their day, then Assyria, and now Babylon, and then Babylon eventually will come off the world scene. And then we'll see the rise of the Persian Empire, or the Medo-Persian Empire, which will be followed by Greece, which will be followed by Rome, which according to the prophecies of Daniel, which will be followed by a revised Roman Empire, and then the final world empire, which will be the one where Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David. So, we've come to the end of our, our journey in, in First and Second Kings, and just a couple of things to mention here. I mean, we, it's a really sad and tragic end uh, at, at this point. We read that psalm this morning, Psalm 126, and it's a psalm of hope. Let me just again remind you, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. It's like a dream come true. You see, there's hope. We've got to this point with, as a nation where it all seems lost, all seems like despairing. And God had already warned that he was going to do such a thing in the land that it would make their ears tingle. Well, God allowed this judgment to come upon them. And there were many reasons why God allowed it, for their iniquity, but also because they hadn't allowed the land to rest in the seventh year as it was supposed to have done. And God effectively said, you owe me 70 years. So for 70 years now, the nation are out. But all of this began with two individuals. Way back, if you remember, the beginning of our study, we looked at two individuals. After Solomon and his tragic end in apostasy, we find this man, Jeroboam. This man who's given this opportunity to become king of Israel, and God would have blessed him. God makes that promise. And yet, he's fearful. He's fearful of losing everything. So he starts by setting up a golden calf in Dan and in Bethel. And says, please don't go back to Jerusalem and worship. Because he's thinking... If the people go back there, they'll say, why do we need two kings? And I would have a job. And so Jeroboam, because of fear, and remember of course what we're taught in Proverbs, that the fear of man brings a snare. Because of that fear, he ends up leading the nation into idolatry. It's just the same down south. We'll look at the southern kings in a moment. But just to remind you again, we've gone through all of these kings, a continual changing of dynasty. There's no peace, there's no hope, lots of people killing each other. And then I mean, the longest dynasty really we have here is Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah and Joram. But that's really only three generations because they are both sons of Ahab. We then get to Jehu, that's the longest dynasty we have because he's promised that his four descendants, four uh, generations will sit on the throne, which they do. But he only lasts, Zechariah only lasts six months. And then we go on and finally, 722, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken away by Assyria in judgment. Down south though, Rehoboam, the other one of these two kings that started the whole process off, well he was frightened too. He was frightened of losing control. And when the people come to him and ask him, are you going to be a, a strict king like your father or are you going to be a good king? He goes and consults. And the answer he comes back and says, no, I'm going to be a really mean king effectively. And people say, fine, bye bye. You see, both individuals ended up making terrible mistakes because of the fear of man. Not willing to trust God. And you see this tragic 
sequence of events that then unfolds. And yes, we've got these good kings, the ones marked in green here, these five, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah, are all recorded as specifically being good kings who walked in the ways of the Lord. But even though there were some temporary recoveries, there was still this downward spiral. You know, and it kind of speaks very much of our efforts. You know, if we try and live our lives right by good intentions, it won't work. We may have some high spots. There may be some good things in our lives that we can refer to and, and think, actually, that was, that was good. But overall, if we're trying to do what we're trying to do, trying to be right with God by the things we're doing, we will stumble, we will fall, it will get worse. You see, we have to learn to live by God's grace. And living by God's grace is about trusting him. Regardless of the circumstances, we've seen so many great lessons through looking at these kings. Particularly, I remind you again, recently we were looking at Hezekiah. In the midst of this situation, the Assyrian army, effectively about to destroy a city, take his people away. Then, he falls sick. And then he's told that he's going to die. And in the midst of all of that, he goes to God. Continually going to God. And you know, the challenge for us, we look at these kings... It's very easy to think, well, that, that's not me. I wouldn't have done that. But we would. We'd have been exactly the same. You see, you go back to the Garden of Eden. And you find with Adam, with Eve, with Eve particularly, that temptation to just take a little bit of the world. To take of the fruit. It looks good, doesn't it? It's going to taste good. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And all of this we see, these kings that were getting into idolatry, that were worshipping their false gods. It was all about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. You know, the same challenge this morning faces you as faced all these kings. And it's either to trust God, regardless of what the circumstances may say, or to try and do it your own way. To try and maybe have a bit of the world. You see, one of the big failings of these kings wasn't that there were a few, but it wasn't that they totally abandoned God completely. It's that they tried to put alongside the worship of God the worship of other things. And it doesn't work. Because you can't be... I mean, somebody said once before, God doesn't work in fractions. (laughs) What they were meaning was that you can't give God half of your attention, half of your life. You see, God wants us to be totally committed to him. Why? Because if you try and do things your way, this is where you end up. You end up with someone like Zedekiah, who finally loses everything. You see, in your attempt to gain everything, you'll lose everything. What was it that Jesus said? About wanting to gain the world and losing your soul. You see, if you learn to die to self, a phrase that the Bible implies so frequently, to give up the right to yourself, you'll live. But if you want to live for yourself, ultimately you'll die, you'll lose everything. The strange thing is, in order to, to keep everything, you have to give it away. You have to realise that Jesus Christ came to give us an abundant life. That's what God wanted for us, right from the start. You know, all of this happens before the cross. And of course there was a, an element where they didn't necessarily understand God's grace as we do now. One of the things that we were looking at at Bible study on Thursday evening was walking in the light and walking in the darkness. And John makes this declaration, so it speaks about an old commandment which you know, that old commandment is simply that we should love each other. But then really effectively goes on to say that actually implies that you couldn't do that. The new commandment is now that you know that God has come in the person of Jesus and brought light. There is no excuse to living this way. You see, in a sense we can argue all of these kings, they didn't really necessarily understand all the spiritual dynamics of these things. Some of them seem to certainly, but for us, we've got no excuse You see, Jesus has come. Jesus did die on the cross and did rise again. One of the best attested facts of history is that Jesus rose from the dead. 
So we've got a challenge this morning of how we're going to live, of how I'm going to live, of how you're going to live. We either try and go our way, try and figure it out. You know, it's almost as if God is giving you that opportunity of being a king. Of course, we're told that we are to be kings and priests. If you were any one of these kings and you were given that opportunity, how would you rule and reign? What would you do? Well, the thing is, if you try and do it your way, you'll fail. And every one of these roads goes to the same place. And it's not a good place. But if we learn to trust in God and daily go to him, well, then God promises great blessing. Just turn with me, if you will, in closing to Psalm 1. In Psalm 1 we read, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. You know, every day we are bombarded by the counsel of the ungodly. Every one of these kings was bombarded by the counsel of the ungodly. Sadly, so many of them listened. What about us? Do we listen to the counsel of the world? All the advertising, all the media, all the things on TV, all the things our non-Christian friends say to us. We're told, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor stands in the way of sinners. Notice the progression here, because then we're going to get, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You know, it's so easy to do that. You're starting by walking. And then you kind of like pause as the world checks you and you start to look around and you start to think about things very much like Eve I guess walking through the garden of Eden quite happily walking along and suddenly the serpent says has God said and then she carries on and she's like stops and then the next thing is you sit in the seat of the scornful and then you start doubting what God has said and you start questioning what God has said but notice verse 2 but his delight this is the man that is blessed his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law does he meditate day and night now this is what the few of the good kings here seem to have done I mean Josiah he uncovers the law that had been lost and hidden what does he do? he reads it and then makes sure that everybody in the realm reads it you see this is Psalm 1 is a great instruction manual for our lives. So again, we need to delight in the law of the Lord. Delight in God's word. In his law, meditate day and night. Don't just leave the Bible to Sundays. And then, look at this blessing. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Well, this morning we're given those two alternatives. These kings who did not prosper overall. The whole thing is just so sad. It's such a shambles. As the the nation falls apart, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But we have a choice. We can choose to trust God with our lives. And that's every day, every moment, every decision however big, however small. That psalm just concludes in verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That's where we've got to with these kings. Lord willing, in January, I intend to start a, a study through the book of Daniel which will pick up very nicely from where we are here at the moment because we'll see Daniel in 606 BC carried away captive and you'll see there the life of a man who we're told purposed in his heart not to be defiled that's the challenge are we going to be like Daniel in that respect Daniel taken away to the University of Babylon, away from any accountability or responsibility. He could have lived as he wanted to. Nobody would have known. But he chooses to stand up and live his life in the midst of a pagan culture for his God. 
And what an influence that man had on history. The incredible things that God revealed to him. I pray that's where we go with our lives. Because the way of the wicked doesn't prosper. And when we talk of the way of the wicked, we kind of often tend to, we don't like to think of ourselves in that sense as being wicked or evil. We tend to think of the worst criminals and apply those words to them. But of course anything that is ungodly is wicked. Anything that's ungodly is evil. Anything in your life that is not right with God is evil, is rebellion. It's because of those things God brought judgment on these nations. Let's just close in prayer now. And as we do so, it's a great opportunity to just come before the Lord in all honesty and just say, Lord, if there is anything, and you know in your own hearts, that is stopping you being the person that God has called you to be, that is taking you down this path, well, now's the time to lay it aside and say, I'm not going to live that way. Now these kings, I honestly believe, a lot of them didn't know how to do it right. But for us, we're no longer in darkness. The light has come. Jesus came to give us light. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's gone before us, and all we have to do is follow after him. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study that we've been able to enjoy through First and Second Kings, looking at the lives of these individuals. Lord, so many lessons to learn, but Lord, the big lesson that we see is it's so easy to fail, it's so easy to stumble and fall if we don't trust you. If we allow things into our lives that are not pleasing to you. And Lord, we will lose everything. So this morning, Father, as we just conclude this time together, just shine your light into our hearts. And Lord, if there is anything, anything at all in our hearts, in our minds, that is displeasing to you, Lord, illuminate it now, that we can confess it before you. And Lord, as your word says, lead us in the way of everlasting. Father, we are sorry for not serving you with our whole hearts. We're sorry for allowing our own thoughts and opinions to dictate and guide us. We're sorry, Lord, for allowing the things of this world to become pleasing and pleasurable to us. Your word clearly says that we shouldn't love this world or the things of this world. Because if we do, your love is not in us. And Lord, we know we need your love. So Father, we confess now. Lord, whatever it is that you are shining your light upon in our hearts to you. Forgive us, we pray. As individuals and as a fellowship. Lead us forward. Lord, we don't want to be like these things. We want to be like people like Daniel. Like Jesus. And so help us, Lord, to know what it means to live each day walking by faith and living by grace. That would be a people who bring glory and honour to you. That our lives would be blessed. That everything that we do would prosper. That Jesus be magnified. We ask all of these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.